James 3 is our text. If you'd like to open your Bible there, shut down your game for a minute, and then go to James 3, and we're looking at verses 13 through 18. I put the topic like this, do you have a zeal for the Lord that is heavenly and good, or one that is earthly and bad? The title of our message, I zeal good, I knew that I would. I was going to do the dance, but there's carpet up here, and so I just, plus I don't dance. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the word of God. We believe it to be alive and powerful and full of your truth. It is the power of God unto salvation. I pray that if there's anyone here that's not a believer, Lord, that that your word would come upon them in in a strong way, that they would be born again by the spirit of God. For those of us who are believers, we would come to understand your wisdom and prefer it to all earthly wisdom all the time. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. If you could go back in time and kill baby Hitler, would you? Now, before you think I've lost my mind, let me tell you that this question came up in the Republican presidential primaries. It really did. I, I actually saw the videos. It wasn't just some Babylon Bee article. Jeb Bush was asked the question, and he unhesitatingly answered yes, adding, you've got to step up. He then qualified his zeal, saying, the problem with going back in history and doing that, as we know from the series, what's the name of the Michael Fox movies? It could have a dangerous effect on everything else. So Jeb Bush cites Michael Fox as an expert on time travel. So in a twist on the question designed to trip him up, Dr. Ben Carson was asked if he would be in favor of aborting baby Hitler. He answered, I'm not in favor of aborting anybody. Donald Trump was asked the question by Jimmy Kimmel. He first stated that he thought Jeb Bush was too nice to kill baby Hitler, that he couldn't actually do it. And then his own answer to the question ultimately was, no comment. Let's go from sci-fi to history. By most counts, from 1934 until 1944, there were more than 20 attempts on Hitler's life. Given the opportunity, I think a lot of people would say, yeah, I would have killed Hitler. In the first century Israel, it wasn't Hitler people wanted to kill, it was Caesar. And it was Jews who worked with the Roman government to keep the peace. There were other patriotic Jews whose desire for independence led them to kill both Roman usurpers and Jewish sympathizers. One such group you've heard of was the Zealots. They promoted armed rebellion against Rome. They believed that God would deliver Israel with the sword. They were called Zealots on account of their zeal to serve God. (coughs) These guys were willing to kill and to die for their national pride. Jesus chose as one of his 12 disciples a zealot, Simon the Zealot. He also chose a tax collector by the name of Matthew. Now, a tax collector was just the kind of high-value target Simon would have wanted to kill, a Jew who was in league with the Roman oppressors. I can't help wonder how long it was before Matthew could sleep through the night knowing that Simon was there among them as they traveled from city to city. After Jesus ascended into heaven... And the apostles and disciples started spreading the gospel. Zealots were getting saved. There were zealots among the believing Jews who had been dispersed by persecution to whom James was writing. 
Should they continue to rebel? Should they promote the sword to encourage through violence their countrymen to rise up? It was an important question among Messianic Jews. James answers it, albeit it's indirectly, in our verses. In verses 14 and 16, when he says envy, the root word is zeal. I'm not saying he was talking only about the zealots and their kind of zeal, but he was describing what real zeal for the Lord looked like. It didn't look anything like what the zealots were doing. They were wrong. I'm sure we each in our own way want to be described as zealous for the Lord. Today we might say we're on fire for God, but this is the same idea. There are at least two different types of zeal, however. One is earthly and the other is heavenly. So I'll organize my thoughts around these two questions. Number one, is your zeal defended by earthly wisdom? Or number two, is your zeal dependent on heavenly wisdom? Let's take a look at earthly wisdom first in verses 13 through 16. As I was researching this, I uncovered this fascinating fact of Jewish history. The zealots were founded by a guy named Judas of Galilee in the year 6 AD in resistance to the census and taxation ordered by Quirinius. He encouraged Jews not to register. Those that did register had their houses burnt and their livestock stolen by his followers. Do you recognize this census? You probably do because we've just come out of the Christmas season. This is the exact census that caused Joseph to travel with his very pregnant wife, Mary, to his ancestral home in Bethlehem to register with Rome. So do you see what's going on here? There were two very different approaches to the same event by Jews. We can certainly sympathize with the zealots. We might even agree with them. After all, our own great nation was born from a revolution involving taxation. But aren't you grateful that Joseph did not join the zealots? Aren't you grateful he wasn't killed by them for cooperating with Rome? It was God's heavenly wisdom for Joseph to submit to the ruling authorities to journey to Bethlehem where Jesus was long destined to be born. There could be no argument. The zealots were operating on an earthly level appealing to a wisdom that James is going to describe as sensual and demonic. That kind of wisdom is always competing for our attention, and we must learn to recognize it so that we can reject it. In most situations of our life, especially when there's a decision to be made, there's an earthly wisdom that sounds spiritual, and there's a heavenly wisdom that is spiritual. And so let's see if we can get some insight into this. In verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Wise and understanding is simply a phrase that describes someone we today might call mature or spiritual. The mature spiritual believer revels in what James calls the meekness of wisdom. If we stick to our historic example, Judas of Galilee and the zealots were not acting meekly. They were fomenting rebellion. They were doing violence to their fellow countrymen who would disagree with them. I'm sure they thought anyone else acting meekly was simply a coward. Joseph, on the other hand, acted meekly, not just in submitting to the census. That was one thing. He was willing to accept God's will that he remain married to a woman whom everyone else believed to be an adulteress. Joseph was no weak coward, at least not morally, where it counted the most. And so he had a meekness that was born of strength of character. As Adrian Rogers used to say, meekness is not weakness. 
If you think meekness is weakness, try being meek for a week. I like that. By his good conduct, it was obvious Joseph's works were done in the meekness of heavenly wisdom. As I said, in almost every situation you encounter in your life, you're presented with a heavenly wisdom that suggests conducting yourself in meekness, and you're presented with an earthly wisdom that sounds spiritual but is really sensual and demonic. I'm sure it was easy to justify the zealot approach. After all, Israel was a sovereign nation, occupied by foreign invaders. They used the Old Testament and King David as their defense, noting that he rose up to deliver Israel with the sword against Gentile oppressors. It all seemed very solid wisdom. I can see us being swayed to go in the direction of the zealots. But with hindsight, we see that Rome was overcome using an entirely different wisdom, a spiritual wisdom, a heavenly wisdom. There was a lot more at stake than their political freedom. Men needed to be delivered from sin and Satan and death. So James describes the earthly wisdom so we can learn to recognize it. He says in verse 14, If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. As I said, the word envy is zeal. It's a neutral term, so it may have either a good or a bad connotation. Bitter qualifies this zeal as something bad. If you use the zealots as your example, I'd say burning down your house was bitter envy in action. Self-seeking denotes a willingness to use unworthy and divisive means to promote your own views or interests. We could use the zealots again, but this same conduct is possible among believers in fellowship with one another. Almost any church split involves self-seeking and selfishness from those who are at odds. Some of you have had the unfortunate experience of being through a church split or a time of church crisis at another church. And uh, it, it can get pretty heated. It can get pretty ugly. Yet both sides claim to be godly and to have the right uh, approach and to have God's wisdom. Nevertheless, they split. It's almost never over a serious issue like doctrine. It's usually over some smaller material issue, seriously, like the color of the carpet or whether or not to put ceramic tile or porcelain tile. I mean, it's crazy stuff. People get very heated about this, and they defend their position. Uh, But it's self-seeking. It's a wisdom that comes from below, not from above. Manipulation in a church is another manifestation of this kind of earthly wisdom. Whether it's subtle or severe, to manipulate other believers through guilt and shame, or by using the techniques of the world, it's earthly wisdom at work. We can boast all we want that we are right, but it's a lie against the truth that we have a sin problem in our hearts. And so in verse 15, this wisdom does not descend from above, but it is earthly, sensual, and demonic. I like this talk about what descends from above. James will mention this again in a few minutes. There is someone above us. Jesus ascended into heaven where he is said to be seated at God's right hand. From that place of authority, he sent the gift of the Holy Spirit to descend upon his church. The church age in which we live is an ongoing Pentecost as we continue to ask and seek and knock for this outpouring of the Spirit from above. And Jesus, who's the giver of good gifts, grants him to us and we go on receiving him by faith. And so we're a people who live on the earth looking up 
and receiving power and enabling from God. We're told, in fact, in Colossians to seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, to set our mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. Have you ever heard this expression, Christians are so heavenly minded they are no earthly good? It's old. It's been around a long time. It's being resurrected a little bit. I see it when I read blogs and uh, some modern Christian uh, articles. Uh, evangelical Christians like ourselves who talk a lot about the rapture of the church and the coming of Jesus and the millennial kingdom are being criticized for being so heavenly minded we're no earthly good when we really should be engaging more with culture and with society and, and um, you know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen and so let's, let's do what we need to do. C.S. Lewis, pretty smart guy, he once commented in print on that criticism. He said this, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not a form of escapism or wishful thinking. It's one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It doesn't mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you find that Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next world. The apostles themselves, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth, precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. And so the kind of wisdom James is describing could never have descended from the purity and majesty of heaven. It is, he says, earthly, sensual, and demonic. You may recall the story of Lot. Both Lot and Abraham had large herds of cattle. Uh, Their herdsmen started to quarrel because the pasture lands were not sufficient for all of their herds. Abraham suggested that the two separate. And being the godly man he was, he gave Lot his choice of land. The Bible tells us that Lot chose lush, fertile land of the Jordan River Valley. Was it a wise choice? Well, at the time, I think it's the choice most people would have made. Abraham says, look, we need pasture land. There's not enough for both of us. You choose. Are you going to choose the difficult desert pasture land or the easy, lush green pasture land. I mean, just from a worldly point of view, an earthly point of view, you want what's already producing. However, the pasture may have looked better, but Lot failed to consider the consequences when he, the Bible says, pitched his tent towards Sodom. In order to get into that pasture land, you had to move towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And he kept moving closer and closer to the notoriously wicked city until he lived in it and became one of its leaders. And so that decision that seemed wise from one point of view ended up being a catastrophe for Lot and his family. When God destroyed Sodom, Lot barely survived. If it wasn't for him being mentioned by the apostle Peter as a righteous man, you'd doubt that he was even saved. Abraham examples the heavenly wisdom in this situation. Certainly it was meekness in action, seeing he was the elder and had every right to tell Lot what to do. Earthly wisdom isn't simply inferior to heavenly wisdom. It is sensual and demonic. Sensual isn't describing the lusts of the flesh or anything like that. It's a word that means unspiritual. It describes life apart from God. It is life without God's spirit. So it would describe all non-believers, all who have not been born again, and it should never describe a believer. 
Now, if you're a believer, you've got the Holy Spirit indwelling you, and he's available to you. But if you choose earthly wisdom over heavenly wisdom, you're acting as if the Spirit isn't involved in your life at all. If you, like Lot, choose the rich pasture land, not thinking where it might lead you, that's a problem. Modern-day example, not quite as significant, I think, as the biblical example, but I've seen it happen. Uh, People decide where they want to live. All of a sudden, there's, especially, I don't know what it is about California. Well, I know what it is about California. And especially at this valley, everybody wants to get out of here. It's, it's like you wake up wanting to get out of here, to go somewhere else. I understand. I actually like it here. But, uh, and, so, and I'm not criticizing that. I just, it's fine. But uh, so often people, they, they go somewhere and it's got everything they're looking for except something spiritual. There's not a church for 100 miles There's no fellowship. Or they haven't looked into it. You just assume there's going to be a good church. I know people right now who've left this church who've never found a church to attend. They've been gone for years. And they're in their dream home, living their dream life without any serving of Jesus Christ. And so it's it's something you need to factor in. If, you're gonna, if you want to move somewhere, that's great. If you have to move somewhere, people do. Find a church. Figure out what you're going to do spiritually, especially if you have a family. We field a lot of calls from people who are trying to find a church. It's like the lowest common denominator. Would you go to these people or these people? I say, well, I'm in Hanford. I'm going to Calvary Hanford. And you should have stayed. <laughs> Click. No, we... we Sometimes there's no alternative. I mean, you, you, you're telling, I didn't move. You move to a place where there's no decent fellowship. That's not my problem. At least you can watch online, I guess, but it's not the same. That's for emergencies. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm going to start teaching from home in a little bed jacket, you know, with my breakfast. Hey. <clears throat> anyway. Earthly wisdom is demonic. Uh, This is why James has a reputation for being kind of in your face. He says it has its source in the devil. His seemingly wise counsel to Eve in the Garden of Eden broke mankind's connection with God. It doomed mankind to an earthly existence that would have ended in dust and death and eternal destruction but for God's gracious intervention. If you could not know what we know about the rest of the Bible, just listening to what Satan said to Eve kind of sounded like it maybe could have made sense. At least it made sense to her. She could follow the logic of it. There was a wisdom to it. When the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness, there was a kind of logic to it. There's a a sort of a wisdom to it. Eve didn't recognize that it was earthly and sensual and devilish. Jesus, of course, did. And all earthly wisdom like that is from the devil. Now, we said that the zealots started out in about 6 AD with Judas the Galilean. By 66 AD, Menahem, a son of Judas, was one of its leaders. He raised a band of cutthroats. They overpowered their opponents who preferred peace with Rome and made a triumphant entry into Jerusalem dressed as a king. Menahem then took control of the temple and had the high priest put to death. One day when he was entering the temple, dressed in royal robes, an angry mob seized him and killed him. Late in 67 AD, John of Geshala rose to power. He was even more brutal than Menahem. 
He had tens of thousands of Jews put to death. Anyone who supported the Romans or desired peace was worthy of death in John's eyes. At one point, he seized the temple and killed the high priest. So fierce was the fighting that 8,500 died on the temple grounds. Judas the Galilean, Menahem, John of Gishala, all seemed zealous for the Lord. But in reality, they conducted themselves with earthly wisdom that was sensual and demonic. Jesus seemingly did nothing for almost 30 years after the Roman census. And three and a half years of ministry went by and he looked defeated having been rejected by the Jews and crucified by the Romans. But three days after he was crucified, heaven's wisdom exploded onto the scene. Jesus was risen. He was alive. His followers would spread his gospel to the whole world. It's a mission we continue to this very day as we await his return to establish the kingdom of heaven on the earth in God's timing. Now, let me be quick to address something you might be wondering about. Does James mean by this to teach Christian pacifism? And the answer to that is no, he's not teaching Christian pacifism. In using the history of first century Israel, we must keep in mind that her destruction had been prophesied by Jesus. Matthew 24, 2, Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And you remember Jesus wept over Jerusalem knowing that her destruction was near and it was inevitable because of their rejection of him. Now, Christian pacifists sometimes cite Jesus' statement, put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. But Jesus wasn't giving a universal command He was talking in the context of Israel's immediate future. In 70 AD, the Romans would crush those like the zealots who were living by the sword. If you lived by the sword in rebellion against Rome, you would die by the sword. This reminds me of the situation of 6th century BC Israel. Jeremiah was prophesying that Jerusalem's destruction was at hand. The city and the temple would be destroyed. And they would be captive in Babylon for 70 years. And so he counseled surrender. It was too late for any personal repentance to save them from national judgment. And so when James is talking, it's in the context of the understanding that Israel was suffering a national judgment. And that there would be no rebellion that was going to throw off their Roman oppression and that the issue really was personal deliverance from sin. Jesus is himself described as wielding a sword at his second coming. He's a warrior. In the meantime, the New Testament instructs us about governments and their power to wield the sword and about our responsibilities within government. To even talk about revolution or pacifism from these verses would be a misapplication. So don't get distracted by what our verses are not saying. What they are saying is that there is an earthly wisdom that is always sensual and demonic. Don't ever apply it to your situation. You know where we see this the most, sadly? We see it the most when in their heart, a spouse lies against the truth of God and decides to pursue an unbiblical divorce. I've heard all kinds of earthly wisdom to try to justify the destruction of a Christian marriage. Earthly wisdom only always destroys. Instead, let's seek the wisdom that's from above. And that's the topic of verses 17 through 18. Is your zeal dependent on heavenly wisdom? Now, we've seen some examples of what zeal for the Lord looks like 
when it does depend on heavenly wisdom. We saw uh, Joseph and Abraham. James next lists some of the main characteristics. He says in verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle. It's willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. This is important. Since it is from above, it is immediately available to you in any and every situation. It is available to you if you've been a believer for 10 minutes or for 10 years. Growing and maturing are an important part of the Christian life. We should practice the disciplines of biblical Christianity to enhance our personal growth. We should read the word. We should pray. We should give to the work of the Lord both of our treasure and of our time. We should fast. We should share our faith. But when it comes to making right choices, wisdom can be yours whenever you need it, wherever you are in your walk. This isn't a matter of thinking, I would have made a better decision if I was a more mature Christian. If I just read Proverbs one more time, or if I was farther along with my walk. Certainly there is a maturing process, and, and that's so important. But James says, the kind of wisdom I'm talking about, heavenly wisdom, comes from above. And that means I simply receive it. I don't do anything to learn about it or to earn it, except... I read God's word and fellowship with God's people to understand when it's in, you know, that it does sound pure and peaceable and all the other things. And so James uses some words to describe the characteristics of wisdom. And these words are pretty straightforward. I mean, we don't need to redefine what we already understand. They don't need definition so much as I think they need a context in which we might see them in action. Since I already mentioned we see so much earthly wisdom in the tragic dissolution of Christian marriages, let's use that as our context and an example for these words that describe wisdom. Now, I understand James is not giving a marriage study, but we can see how applying heavenly wisdom affects marriage. And really, every study is a marriage study. Every study is a how-should-I-live study. Because the Lord is speaking to us. And in this case, he's saying, you want to choose heavenly wisdom. Maybe you're not having trouble in your marriage. Maybe it's at work. But let's, let's use marriage because it, it hits home. Everybody can understand this. Thank you, Sue, what I'm going to do with this. And, and you'll understand. So he says, wisdom that is from above is first pure. Whatever God clearly says about marriage, we must yield to. I should not mix my own ideas about marriage with what God has said. To do so is to add earthly wisdom, which makes everything instantly impure. And so God has a pure teaching on marriage. And when I add something that is outside of the realm of his uh, teaching on marriage or definition of marriage or examples of marriage, I make it impure. And so I, I must start with the wisdom that is above, which is pure. And so, biblical marriage, heterosexual, monogamous, to last for a lifetime. Any other definition of marriage is earthly, sensual, and yes, it's absolutely demonic. Grounds for divorce include sexual sin and abandonment. Now, that's not why most Christian marriages end. There are usually no grounds other than personal feelings. 90% of the Christian couples I've counseled over the past 30 years have had zero grounds for divorce. 
other than they stopped loving each other, didn't like each other, had feelings for other people, none of which allow you to get a divorce and marry someone else from God's point of view. In fact, what happens is one spouse starts adding impurities to their thinking. They start feeling sorry for themselves. They convince themselves they're not happy. They start flirting with friends or co-workers. They get involved with pornography. Simultaneously, they begin to lower the biblical definition of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. It's like a storm taking place in their life because we're not guarding our hearts and receiving from God what is pure. The wisdom from above that is pure would hold you to your wedding vows, the ones where you promise to stay together for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do you part. Sometimes I bring this up in counseling. I say, what about your vows? And people chuckle. They just think that was part of the ceremony. That's just something you have to do in order to get married. They don't understand that they're actually promising before God to do these things. It, it, it doesn't have a, an effect on them. Next, James lists peaceable. And you may be thinking, you don't know what my spouse is like. Peace is just not possible doesn't matter what your spouse is like, you're to respond by being peaceable. Since it is a quality that, remember, comes from above, it's something you can do. I'm not saying we, we do it 100% of the time because we still have a sin. Uh, we still have flesh. We still give in to the flesh. Uh, we still sin. James says if you say you don't sin, you're a liar. But the point that James is making is, you can have a wisdom that comes from above that's first of all pure, and then it's peaceable, meaning you can stay at peace in whatever situation is raging around you. Next, heavenly wisdom is gentle. Such a person submits to mistreatment and difficulty with an attitude of kind, courteous, patient humility without any thought of hatred or revenge. I know your spouse pushes you too far. Absolutely, you have limits. And, and you're, you're proud of your limits. You know, that you keep moving them farther out, but... After a certain point, you're just, it, it's beyond limit. This, again, comes from above. It's a gift to be received, not something to be learned or earned over time. The Christian life isn't a matter of slowly overcoming your natural limits. It is life without limits since you have help from heaven. Can we do it perfectly? No. I don't want this to burden anybody. But we need to change our thinking because we all think this way. We think, well, I have limits. And my limit is right here, and I, it's, it's better than my neighbor's limit. It's better than I was a non-believer, and it moves, you know, in, in minuscule ways from time to time as I grow and mature. James says, forget about that. Live without limits by appealing to heaven for its wisdom. Are you willing to yield? Now, you can't always yield. Sometimes your spouse is wrong or in sin. Plenty of situations people come in and they say, well, you know, I know it's part my fault and part her fault. In reality, buddy, it's your fault. Your wife hasn't done anything except just be a person who, you know, continues to be a sinner. But really, what you're doing is just wrong and it's destroying your marriage or vice versa. And so you can't always yield, but are you willing to yield when possible? More importantly, let's say, God forbid, but let's say you're a person right now who's in this process. You're somewhere along the line of thinking that divorce maybe makes sense. Maybe you're even already in love with another person while you're still married. Are you willing to yield to God? 
Because he's coming today through this word and he's saying, my marriage is pure and it's peaceable and it's gentle. And I'm going to hold you to it. Are you willing to yield to God's definition of marriage? It's a very serious question. And most people today sadly answer it by saying no. I don't know if they understand how serious that is. And so we try and make them understand and they, then they say things like, well, God will forgive me. So I'm just going to sin like crazy. I'm going to sin like a bandit. Everywhere I go, I'm going to sin, sin, sin until I get rid of this old marriage, this clunky old marriage, and get into my new relationship. And then, woo, I'm going to become a deacon <laughs> or an elder or a pastor. I'm going to get so spiritual you can't believe it. It sounds funny, but it's tragic. This is exactly what people do. They are not willing to yield to God and to the word of God. You can be full of mercy and good fruits in your home. You want to draw your spouse closer to Jesus, not push them away from you. Sometimes we forget that we have a responsibility to this other person. Without partiality in the context of marriage means you see your spouse as a work in progress. You see him or her as God does. You don't compare them to some imaginary standard or to someone else. I know, I know you can't do this either, not naturally, but you can do it supernaturally. And finally, James says, it's without hypocrisy. If you ultimately end up at an excuse to walk away from your marriage with no biblical grounds, it's a hypocrisy. You're a person who could depend upon heavenly wisdom. You could have a zeal for the Lord, but instead you settle for earthly wisdom. You give in to that which is sensual and demonic, the most popular of which is God wants me to be happy. And so you're blaming your unhappiness in your current marriage on God and asking him to forgive you your sin of breaking that marriage and then to bless your new marriage where guess what? You're not gonna be happy either because happiness is not what you should seek. Obedience and joy is what you should seek. Now, these characteristics apply in every situation, not just marriage. But marriages are in trouble. They're under attack. Uh, If that's not you, then think about whatever situation you are in, at work or at home or at school or something like that. These same characteristics should be true of you. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Like so much in James, translators have a difficult time with these words. I think James is talking about the effect depending upon God's wisdom, has on observers of your life. He depicts you as a sower. No matter where you are or what you're doing, if you're a Christian, you're always sowing, meaning that people take note of your conduct. They look at you and they think automatically, I mean, if it's an illustration, but they're thinking, what is Gene sowing right now? You want to sow the fruit of righteousness. Now, that's immediately interesting since normally we think of sowing what? Seed. You don't really sow fruit. I don't go out and throw pineapples into the ground, you know, and expect anything to happen. And so, uh, is pineapple a fruit? (laughs) I hate pineapple. But anyway, it just came to me. Uh, So you're a sower of fruit. Uh, The fruit of righteousness is conduct that is consistent with having been declared righteous by God or stupid like I am. It involves doing what is right from a biblical worldview. People watch you to see if your conduct is fruitful rather than destructive. That's the idea. 
I'm not sure if I get everything James is trying to say in this verse, but here's something to ponder. I can sow the seed of God's word even if my conduct is poor. The gospel is in itself the power of God unto salvation. So normally I think about, when I think of sowing, I think of the parable of the sower and sowing the word of God. So where I go, I, I, you know, when I have the opportunity to share the gospel, and the gospel is itself the power of God unto salvation. No matter what's going on in my life, if I share the gospel, it, it has its own effect and its own power. But James says, you're not just a sower of seed, you're a sower of fruit. And it's, people are going to look at your life to see if what you say about the word of God lines up with how you live for God. It's James' way of saying your walk needs to match your talk. Depending on heavenly wisdom is no easy task. It is often, maybe almost always, counter to what we want to do or think is right. Doc Hudson tried to share his wisdom about driving on a dirt racetrack with Lightning McQueen. He said, I'll put it simple. If you're going to go hard left enough, you're going to find yourself turning right. McQueen thought it counter to what he should do, saying, oh, right, that makes perfect sense. Turn right to go left. Yes, thank you. Or should I say, no, thank you. Because in opposite world, maybe that really means thank you. That's better than first service. Thank you for, you know, a smattering of recognition there. Lightning McQueen, Cars, you get it. How many are familiar with the Cars movie? Great movie. If you seek wisdom from above, you will often think you are in opposite world. And so will your friends. And many Christians will give you counsel that is earthly. Meaning well. I'm not saying they're trying to trip you up or that they're influenced by the devil or anything like that. But there is a lot of earthly wisdom and counsel. Because heavenly wisdom can be very difficult. It's hard to be Abraham and give Lot the lush pasture land. It's hard to be Joseph and not want to be a zealot and throw off the Roman oppression, but instead travel to Bethlehem with your nine-month pregnant wife who everybody thinks is an adulteress. In fact, almost all the Bible stories are contrary to earthly wisdom. And we read them and we think, wow. Wow, that's fantastic. Look, Joseph, well, Joseph, hang in there, buddy. In just a few chapters, you're going to be second in command to Pharaoh. You're going to save Israel. Hang in there, man. That's some wisdom right there. And then we go to work. Our boss mistreats us. I'm out of this place. I don't need this. That's what's happening here. Do you want to be earthly, sensual, and demonic? Do you want to be heavenly? Never choose that which is earthly. You always reject it. And whatever you're deciding today or soon, look up for the wisdom that comes from above.